Listen to some of the best in modern audio drama right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. Welcome to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Today we celebrate two centuries of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with two original radio plays inspired by the legendary tale. We present these stories in the style of two classic radio shows, Escape and Inner Sanctum Mystery. Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, was originally published January 1st, 1818. Mary Shelley conceived the story on a rainy afternoon in Geneva, where she was staying with her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, and their mutual friends, Lord Byron and John William Polidori. As the story goes, they all agreed to write a gothic ghost story, but to the surprise of nobody, the men immediately forgot their promise and presumably spent the rest of the night drinking port and complimenting each other's smoking jackets. <laughs> Meanwhile, 19-year-old Mary Shelley wrote a 280-page novel that reinvented the horror genre while simultaneously inventing a completely new one, science fiction. There are many fine radio versions of Frankenstein, including a 1931 episode of The Witch's Tale, written by St. Paul native Alonzo Dean Cole, and a 1932 Australian adaptation serialized in 13 epic parts. Despite the popularity of the 1931 film, radio writers often adhered closely to Shelley's novel, portraying the monster as literate and well-spoken, a characterization better suited to audio than Karloff's monosyllabic grunts. However, as much as we enjoy these radio scripts, they are a little too true to the book. One of the enduring qualities of Shelley's novel is its seemingly endless ability to inspire readers to tell their own version of the story. And that's what we're going to do today, starting with Long Live Frankenstein, written in the style of Escape by our very own Tim Uren. Escape was an anthology series designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure featuring stories filled with danger and excitement, many of them adapted from classic literature. Author John Dunning, in his book On the Air, The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio, describes the basic formula of escape as a strong protagonist, facing the impossible alone, rising to conquer, or be conquered. The series debuted on CBS July 7, 1947, and ran until September 25, 1954. Due to erratic scheduling by the network, Escape had difficulty attracting a long-term commercial sponsor. The only significant period of sponsorship was a four-month stint by the Richfield Oil Corporation. Despite these challenges, Escape consistently produced some of the very best drama on the air. No pressure, Tim. <laughs> One aspect of Shelley's novel that often gets jettisoned in adaptations is its framing sequence. The story of Frankenstein is being told in a letter from Robert Walton to his sister. While Walton was on an expedition to find the North Pole, he discovered Victor Frankenstein wandering in the snow. Frankenstein told his story to Walton, and that story included a point at which the creature shared his own story with Frankenstein. So to be clear, what happened to the creature when it was on its own was told to Frankenstein, who then included it in a deathbed confession being told to Walton, who in turn wrote everything down and sent it to his sister, Margaret. 
There is a lot going on here. In the book, Walton's letter reveals his own eventual fate as well as that of Frankenstein and the creature. If you haven't read it, I'm afraid my story today is going to spoil the ending of the book. <laughs> but it has been 200 years since it was published, so I feel okay about it. <laughs> Inspired by the often ignored framing sequence of Shelley's story, this is Long Live Frankenstein. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are hiding on an unnamed island waiting for an unspeakable horror to appear on the horizon. And the nightmare that's hunting you is the unnatural creation of a man named Frankenstein. Escape is brought to you by a Richfield Gasoline Dealer and a Richfield Oil Corporation of New York. Marketers of Richfield Gasolines and Dialene, Rich New Fall Weather Motor Oil, and other famous petroleum products. Look for the Richfield Eagle on the green and blue pumps. Tonight, we escape to the icy waters of the Arctic Circle and the search for a lost soul in Long Live Frankenstein, a tale inspired by Mary Shelley's classic novel. My name is Margaret Seville, and I have lied to these men. For two days, the captain and his two crewmen, Peter and Stefan, have transported me from island to island, kindly reassuring me that they were certain we would find my brother Robert. I said that he had taken a sled across the ice, anxious to map the terrain, but that some unknown difficulty had delayed his return. He was well provisioned, I said, but now that the sea had re-emerged from the ice, I feared that he was stranded. But I knew that Robert was a world away, safe and warm in his own bed. Stephen! Once we get the boat secured, help me to bring some wood to the shore. We'll have a fire tonight. Hi, right, Captain. We're stopping here for the night. I would be happy to continue if it is a question of my fortitude. It's a long way to the next island, and there's a lot of territory to search here. I just don't want you to slow your pace on my account. There's no fear of that, ma'am. Most don't take to the sea as you have. That's kind of you, Peter. Robert had a great love of the sailing. Has a great love, I should say. It was a pursuit he often shared with me. Chin up, Mrs. Seville. We'll, we'll find him. We're getting close. Look alive, man! Hi, Captain. Stefan and Peter secured the boat and we stepped out into the shallow water. Moss and lichens covered the rocky beach. As we traveled further inland, we found tundra carpeting the hilly terrain. The captain and Stefan started walking in one direction, and Peter and I went the other. For six hours, we scoured this island. It was exactly as my brother had described it in his stories and letters. As our search gradually took us back to the beach where we began, Peter stopped walking. Mrs. Seville. Yes, Peter, is, is something wrong? Well, I need to, ma'am, I, I should tell you, I, I know... I know who you are. Peter, I am who I told you I am. I, I was on the ship with your brother. We, we all were, ma'am. The captain and Stefan. They never learned to read, but I, I can a little. 
I saw his letters. He, he was always writing to you. I recognized your name. Yes. Three years ago, Robert led an expedition in search of the North Pole. You were on that ship as well. Yes, uh, but I don't understand. Now, why, why would he come back? I mean, it's not as though he could even reach the pole by a sled. You know, when I last saw him, he, he had no plans to try again. Yes, he has no plans. He had no plans. He would never come back. He still has no plans. He left our family as an ambitious adventurer, and he returned home unsuccessful with no desire to accomplish anything beyond hearth and home. Ma'am, he, he turned back because we were getting trapped in the ice. If he tried to keep going, it would have killed us all. You were on the ship. Did you see him? Ma'am, where's your brother? He's home with his wife. He's a carpenter now, completely contented. He's home. Ma'am. Why have you brought us here? Did you see him, Peter? Did I see... Frankenstein? You mean Frankenstein. No, uh, not Frankenstein. I'm not here looking for that filth. That man deserves the death he suffered. I brought us out here because I'm here looking for his demon. Frankenstein was the name of a scientist that Robert had found dying out in the snow. Through strange alchemical means, he brought life to an inanimate simulacrum of humanity. The creature which Frankenstein never deigned to name was an enormous, cadaverous monstrosity, possessed of titanic strength. Repulsed by his own creation, Frankenstein drove it away. But this thing, which Frankenstein called an abominable wretch, developed into a supremely sensitive and thoughtful being. From such horrors arose an entity of nobility and kindness. I had not realized that these men had been aboard the ship when Frankenstein had offered his dying confession. According to Robert, the creature itself came aboard the ship to collect his creator's body. One of these men might have seen the wondrous thing. That night around the campfire, the captain confronted me about what I had confessed to Peter. We're done! When the sun rises, we'll head back. Captain. Mrs. Seville, I have a tremendous respect for your brother. I will overlook the fact that your deception could have put us in danger. What were you thinking, ma'am? Uh, that man we found died. We saw him die, and the creature he spoke of was likely the ravings of a sick mind. The creature was real. Robert saw it. He told me of it. I never saw any such thing. Nor I, ma'am. Captain? D did you see something, Captain? It's dead. It took Frankenstein's body and it vowed to destroy itself. Captain, you saw it. But it didn't die. He didn't. I can feel it. Mrs. Seville, I think you may not be well. Is that what you think? While Robert had his dream of finding the North Pole, I had my dream as well. I dreamt of sunshine on a small garden. I dreamt of a husband and child at the dinner table. And I took that dream and I buried him in my little garden after he went cold in his crib. I, that's a terrible sorrow, ma'am. My husband thought so. He blamed me, saying that my weakness was to blame, my frailty. He quickly gave himself over to drink, and in the years that followed, drink never saw fit to return him. And it was in this darkness that I received Robert's letters. I knew when I read of this creature, I knew that this was where I was needed. I knew that this abandoned miracle needed me, it needs me. It needs to hear that it is loved. Whatever idea you may have about this thing, let me assure you, it's unworthy of your efforts. It's not human. It may be able to take 
on the semblance of gentility, but it's a cold, murderous ghoul. Frankenstein was in the Arctic to kill the thing after it took the life of his betrothed. It's, it's an unnatural horror. That act of anger was Frankenstein's anger. That cruelty, Captain, was Frankenstein's cruelty. If that madman had simply made a companion for the creature, as he said he would... Then there would be two of these monsters. Frankenstein is dead. The demon is dead. There's nothing here for you. In the morning, you can get on that boat and return with us, or you can remain here. Good night. Well, I'm, I'm going to turn in as well, Mrs. Seville. There's more logs for the fire over here if you need. Stefan, St Stefan, is something wrong? What are you looking at? Nothing. Just a bad feeling, I guess. See you in the morning, ma'am. There was no decision to be made. Staring into the fire, I gave no consideration to my options. I was certain that I had come far enough. In the morning, I would remain here and wait for the creature to find me. And with joy in my heart, I would take its beauteous, malformed face in my hands. Gradually, the flames died and I returned to the boat. My slumber was deep and dreamless. A sleep sounder than any I had known for years and sounder than I was ever to know again. I was abruptly awakened by Peter, shaking me by the shoulders. Margaret! Margaret, wake up! Wake up! You've got to run right now! My thoughts cleared at once as I heard the cries of a man on the boat's deck. Peter pulled me to my feet and pushed me out of the cabin. As I emerged into the gray dawn, I immediately saw the crumpled heap that had once been Stefan. Twisted and broken, his body had left a long, bloody streak across the deck. I then saw the captain whose cries had awoken me. He was struggling with a silhouetted figure who held the captain's arm distended at an unnatural angle, removing the limb from its socket. I turned away in a flash of revulsion, but I also felt a rush of excitement. Could this be the creature? Was it seeking me as I sought it? Run! Hi! Peter pushed me toward the shore. As I ran, the ocean at my feet began to soak my gown. That thing couldn't have been the creature. It was no taller than the captain. When I stole a quick glance backward to see what became of the captain, I saw his lifeless form thrown from the deck into the water. Now that I had reached the shore, Peter turned back, armed with a mallet. My run slowed to a backward stagger. You're dead. You died. I was there. The thing's face was scarred, blistered, and burned. I saw the tattered figure descend from the boat and slowly approach Peter. Yes. I died, and yet I live. I possess formidable skill in the animation of dead tissue. Many times in my travels, I found the need to administer those same techniques upon myself that gave life to my creature. It was the only way I could pursue the wretch for as long as I did. Many times death came to call. My demise aboard that ship was not the first, and I doubt it will be the last. But like that horrid thing, I now live on. On and on. Long live Frankenstein. Peter struggled bravely, but the horror was upon him, pushing him to the ground and crushing his throat in one fluid motion. I turned and ran as fast as I could. The chilly air burned in my lungs and the stony terrain tore at the flesh of my bare feet. Every muscle ached. When I could stand no more, I threw myself to the ground, hoping the tundra would mask me to some degree. I listened 
I listened for the approach of Frankenstein. He hadn't followed me. But of course, why would he? If he wanted me dead, he could just take the boat and leave. The thought which seemed so agreeable last night suddenly terrified me. I wondered if I died here, would I spend eternity haunted by those three whose lives were cut short by my madness? What endless vengeance would they choose to torment my soul? This dour reverie was cut short by a voice echoing across the island. Margaret! That's what the smaller man called you, wasn't it? Margaret? You must be frightened. But you have no cause to be. I won't leave without you. I must apologize about my appearance. When last I saw my demon, he had thought me dead and hoped to burn us both on a pyre. You should have seen the disappointment on his monstrous face, Margaret. It was a joy to see. He killed my Elizabeth. He wanted me to wander the world alone like him. But now I have you. I am no longer alone. I'll wait, Margaret. You will get hungry. You will get cold. When you are ready, I will be here. At this time of year, daytime in the Arctic is a very long span of time. To survive, I needed to get to the boat, but with no trees, approaching the beach unseen and in the daytime would be impossible. After an eternity of shivering and expectation, the night finally arrived. To my dismay, the moon was full and bright. I could think of only one alternative. I slowly got to my feet and stretched my stiff joints. I could see light toward the beach. Frankenstein must have started a fire. Keeping low to the ground, I slowly moved forward until I could see the fire. Peter still lay on the beach where he had fallen this morning. There was no sign of the lunatic who had killed them. I traced the periphery of the firelight, following a wide arc until I reached the beach about 200 feet away from the boat. There was no sign of Frankenstein or any indication he had seen or heard me. Hesitantly, I stepped into the water. The salt water stung the cuts and scrapes on my feet and every muscle clenched at the bitter cold. I listened to the water coming in and out and timed my dive to let the sound of the tide mask the noise. With each gentle rush of waves, I pushed myself forward, intent on reaching the boat from the side away from the island. Willpower alone propelled me ten feet, then twenty. I had perhaps reached a third of the distance when the feeling in my hands and feet went from numb to stabbing pains. My heart thundered in my chest. After the next 20 feet, further progress at this rate felt impossible. I would have to swim at a mad dash the rest of the distance. My splashing was obvious now, but I could see the wooden sanctuary looming larger and larger. Finally, my hand made contact with the hull. I reached out to pull myself on board, but suddenly another hand emerged from the waves and grabbed my wrist. No longer needing air or warmth, he had hidden himself under the water, waiting for me in the icy depths. He dragged me toward the beach, stopping a few feet from the shore and lifting me out of the water with one hand. I couldn't fight or scream or cry. I had nothing left in me but violent shivering. He looked at me with unbridled malevolence. Rejoice, my companion. 
you will know what it is to no longer fear death. Once I have you back in my lab, I can transform you into a miracle. You will be resurrected as an immortal being. We will conquer these fragile humans and rule over them as gods. Perhaps we may even find a child that pleases us and claim him as our own. Would you like that? No, no. I think, however, the journey will be much simpler if I just kill you now. He pushed my head underwater. I was already chilled to the bone. My lungs were already burning. My ears rang and fog rolled into my thoughts. Then for a moment, Frankenstein's hand pulled back. I grabbed as much air as I could, but his distraction was fleeting. I saw death approaching, and he again pushed my head below the surface. <laughs> I felt the world slipping away. I had seen death, but a thought was stuck in my head. No, it was not death. I had seen something large and ghastly moving through the water. It was not death, or if it was, it was not my death. <laughs> Frankenstein let me go. He was backing away from the towering figure that had emerged from the water. Frankenstein! <laughs> Choking and staggering, I collapsed onto the shore next to Peter's corpse. My thoughts began to drift away. In the moonlight, I saw the giant lumber onto the beach and searched for something on the ground. It lifted a large stone with one hand cradling it like an infant. With its other arm, the giant dragged a figure behind it, some sort of large rag doll. The doll's arms and legs flailed at odd angles and its face contorted. I smiled at the thought of this favorite toy enduring the excesses of a child's affection. The doll's worn joints winged and cried out with each step as the giant walked back out into the water. The enormous figure finally pushed the doll beneath the surface and then lovingly set the stone on top of it. My gaze turned back to the blank expression on Peter's face. How nice, I thought. How nice for this loving stone to be settled into a long, peaceful nap, nestled in the arms of its favorite toy. I smiled, and darkness overtook me. I awoke to find myself wrapped in blankets next to the fire. The creature had been industrious in the night. Three stone mounds lay nearby. What do you see? The creature's imposing silhouette stared out at the sea. What do you see when you stare at the grave? It turned to look at me, and I saw, contrary to my hopes, its face was not a gentle one. Black eyes looked down on me with pity. When I look at a grave, I see a loving embrace. I see the nothingness that I once knew and longed to return to. My creator looked at the grave and saw an insult. He took it as a personal slight. What do you see? 
I struggled to think of even one word of what I had dreamed of saying to it. The imagined speeches of the past three years were gone. I shivered and cried, and something heavy fell away from my heart. Whatever it is that you see, do not linger. Never look at a grave too long. It will never love you back. The sun began to rise, and with the morning, I felt ready to launch the boat and return home. Once I was at sea, I looked back to the island. I saw the creature was simply sitting on the beach, gazing up at the sun. I admired his contentment for a time, but not too long. escape-like episode was written by Tim Uran and produced by the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. You have escaped tonight in the story, Long Live Frankenstein. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Today's final story is an original play written in the style of Inner Sanctum Mystery. The series was created by Hyman Brown, one of the great storytellers of the golden age of radio. Brown's career spanned eight decades and a diverse range of genres. From his adaptation of comic strip hero Dick Tracy to his 1970s revival of radio drama, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Despite his many contributions to the medium, Brown is best remembered for one series, Inner Sanctum Mystery. The program ran on NBC from January 1941 to October 1952 and featured one of radio's most famous openings, an organ sting followed by a rattling doorknob, then the agonizingly slow opening of the world's creakiest door. <laughs> According to a 1973 interview in the Pittsburgh Post, Hyman Brown copyrighted the sound, bragging, I took that creak and made it a star. Why, I bought several Picassos with that creak. Inner Sanctum's other claim to fame was the host who lurked behind that creaking door, Raymond Edward Johnson, known simply as Raymond. Raymond introduced each story with a litany of ghoulish jokes and horrendous puns. In 1945, Raymond left the series, replaced by Broadway actor Paul McGrath, referred to as Mr. Host. That same year, Lipton Tea became the sponsor of Inner Sanctum Mystery, and for a brief run of episodes, the show was co-hosted by Mary, the Lipton Tea Lady. Mary's bright and chipper demeanor was a stark contrast to McGrath's morbid sense of humor. The two quickly became one of radio's strangest comedy duos. Inner Sanctum Mystery borrowed its name from a line of mystery novels published by Simon & Schuster, but rarely used the novels as source material. Instead, the radio series developed its own style of over-the-top storytelling, fueled by improbable situations, shameless plot twists, and a liberal dose of dark humor. In a recent Vox article, film and television critic Charles Bromisco argues that Inner Sanctum still makes for great listening, 65 years after its final broadcast. According to Bromesco, Inner Sanctum transports listeners to a horror paradigm governed by the notion that being scared should be kind of fun and kind of silly. As the writer of today's Inner Sanctum script, I have endeavored to capture that fun and silly spirit. One of the things I love about the original show is its running commentary on the process of its own creation, whether it be in the form of self-referential jokes from the host or the gleefully convoluted plots seemingly designed to make Rube Goldberg jealous. 
I took the show's Anything Goes attitude as tacit approval to expand my indulgent references to include not just the show itself, but other radio shows of the era, literary characters, and the universal horror movies that made Frankenstein a household name. So in the spirit of inner sanctum, we invite you to have some fun, to laugh, to maybe even cringe a little as we perform this love letter to one of my favorite old-time radio shows. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup presents Inner Sanctum Mystery. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host welcoming you through the squeaking door for a story I predict will leave you in stitches. <laughs> no, not the kind you get from laughing, the kind you get from being violently dismembered and sewn back together again. <laughs> How can I be so sure? Why, I read it in your horoscope. <laughs> Goodness gracious, Mr. Host, we've only been on the air for 30 seconds and already you're making jokes about dismemberment. You know what they say, Mary, no guts, no gory. <laughs> well, you know what I say, no guts, no Liptons. <laughs> That's right, only the bravest of tea sippers can handle the big, bold taste of Lipton tea. So it's no surprise that Lipton Tea is America's leading brand of tea. America doesn't want a tea that's flat or wishy-washy. America wants a tea that's as hardy as its men, as full-bodied as its women, and as bright and zestful as its children. <laughs> tea experts call this smooth, sharp, mellow, tangy flavor brisk, because brisk is a lot easier to say than smooth, sharp, mellow, and tangy. <laughs> What are you waiting for? Pour yourself a cup of Lipton tea and let your taste buds pledge allegiance to the red, white, and brisk. <laughs> Mary, I never knew you were so patri-psychotic. It's the perfect segue to tonight's tale of terror, a story set during the final months of the war in Europe. It's a play inspired by Mary Shelley's classic novel, adapted for radio by Joshua English Scrimshaw. I call it Inglorious Monsters. May 1944, weeks before the invasion of Normandy, Allied forces learned of a secret Nazi base hidden in a dormant volcano on Easter Island. The base was home to a team of Nazi antiquarians conducting research into unexplained phenomenon under the direct supervision of Hitler's Commandant of the Occult, Gustav Schneel. As our strange story begins, Captain von Hoef, head of security, burst into Schneel's private library. Commandant! Captain, all that screaming and dying is very distracting. Very, very Commandant. But I must insist. Have you read any Agatha Christie, Captain? What? I find her mysteries impossible to put down. This one is called And Then There Were None. It's not a murderer who lures his victims to a remote island, killing them one by one. Uh, uh, Commandant, please, we must go now. As you wish, Captain. But first, may I ask you to hand me one of those sabers from the wall behind you? Yes, Commandant, but a saber can't possibly protect you against those things. Oh, my dear Captain, this isn't for our guests. It's for you.
quiet bleed, Captain. That's a good soldier. You see, I happen to know that one of our guests has quite a taste for blood, and you can't spring a trap without bait. Isn't that right, my friends? Oh, I know you're in here. Two of you, that is. The third one is difficult to hide, but I expect he'll shamble along soon enough. In the meantime, please introduce yourself. No? Well, in that case, I'll let you in on a little secret. I already know who you are. That faint mist swirling on the captain's dead body, it is none other than Lieutenant Lucy Rassenra. Do you mind taking human form so we can talk face to face, my dear? How do you know my name, you Nazi swine? I learned it from a spy. I would think that was fairly obvious. We are at war, after all. I'm going to thoroughly enjoy ripping your throat out. Oh, patient lieutenant, we haven't met all your friends yet. Isn't that right, Dr. Griffin? Or should I say, the Invisible Man? Don't say a word, Griffin. If you talk, he'll know where you are. No need for silence, Dr. Griffin. I'm fairly confident you're standing... Roughly two feet to my right. I'm also fairly confident you had corned beef and onions for lunch. <laughs> Invisibility is no excuse for poor dental hygiene. <laughs> the weed of crime causes bad breath. Onions do not pay. The mouthwash knows. <laughs> Shut up, you fool. Fascinating. The invisibility servant has affected your friend's mind. He thinks he's a character from your American radio. I observe similar mental instability in my own test subjects. Of course, German test subjects are usually psychiatric patients, so mental instability tends to be a constant in all our experiments. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think we can both agree invisibility is far from the espionage breakthrough we had hoped for. Allow me to show Dr. Griffin the same mercy I would any failed experiment. <laughs> Griffin! <sighs> I'll kill you for that schneel. Stand down, Lieutenant. Our mission is to capture this filth alive. Finally! The last member of your little... Oh, oh, wait. What is it that they call your group again? Monster Company. Oh, yes, that is adorable. Quite precious. And you must be Captain Prometheus, the leader of Monster Company. My, you are a horror to behold. You must be at least seven feet tall. I'm getting a kink in my neck just looking at you. He killed Griffin, Captain. Oh, I killed you too, my dear. You just don't know it yet. What are you talking about? He is trying to distract you, Lieutenant. Do not listen to him. Stay focused on the mission. Focused? I can't. What's wrong with me? Do you remember all those men you killed out there? I assume you couldn't help but take a nibble out of one or two of them, yes? Did you taste anything peculiar in the blood? Maybe you noticed some of the men were a little sluggish, half-blind? That's what happens when you cut a soldier's Jägermeister with methyl alcohol, or, as it's better known... Wood alcohol. You see, it's not the stakes with the heart that kills the vampire. It's the wood. A stake is simply the most expedient delivery system, but given enough time, even a sliver is terminal. Perhaps that's why you don't find many vampires in the carpentry trade. Captain, I'm burning up. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I've always wanted to say that. It's so dramatic. <laughs> Almost as dramatic as pushing this concealed button on my desk and electrifying the floor you're standing on. Ah! Ah! My, that looks painful. W would you like me to turn down the voltage? Oh, I can't tell if that was a nod or a spasm of agony. 
How about we make a deal? I will turn it off completely if you tell me one little thing. Where is your creator, Victor Frankenstein? We want it back. His genius belongs to Germany. Imagine what the right could do with an army of soldiers immune to death. Tell me, Kater, where is Victor Frankenstein? Oh, perhaps by increase the voltage. Fool, Schneel. I was born from electricity. It cannot kill me. Yeah, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. No, you smashed the small thing because the electrical circuit. That's not the only thing I will break, Schneel. Ah, tell me, Schneel, when you are looking at me, what do you see? Monster. Is it because I am not the Aryan Superman you had hoped for? Remember your mission? Take me alive! My mission was to discover if the Reich had developed supernatural weapons. I have my answer. You have demonstrated a knowledge of invisibility and vampirism equal to allied forces. But your attempt to kill me revealed your ignorance of even basic Calvinism. You have lost this uncanny arms race, Schneel. I am the atomic bomb of monster science, and you will never know my terrible secret. Not in this life. Mission completed. I was extracted from Easter Island by the USS Minneapolis and taken immediately to sickbay where I was treated by Monster Company's resident nurse, 2nd Lieutenant Elsa Lanchester. My wounds were superficial, but the loss of Lieutenant Westenra and Dr. Griffin ran much deeper. Not just for me, uh, but for Elsa, too. Oh, Lucy, and Dr. Griffin, too. He was such a brilliant man once. I failed them, Elsa. I led my friends to their deaths. It's not your fault, Prometheus. It was Schneel. He killed them. I saw myself in his eyes. Just before I snapped his neck, I saw what Schneel saw. I saw horror. I saw death. No, oh, Prometheus, you're not a horror. You're a good man. This body, your appearance, it's not you. It was something that was done to you. The real monster was Victor Frankenstein. Schneel wanted to know about Frankenstein, where he was, what happened to him. Well, he's dead. How can the Nazis not know that? It was a German bomb that killed him. What I find more troubling is the information Schneel did know. Our names, our ranks... Elsa, he knew we were coming. But how? Unless... Someone in Monster Company is a spy. But after what happened on the island, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but there's no one left in Monster Company to be a spy. There's Lieutenant Talbot. You can't be serious. Lieutenant Talbot is just a boy and one of the gentlest souls I've ever met. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Unless the moon is full. Well, that's precisely my point. Talbot can only be deployed once a month, and even then, he needs at least two handlers just to keep him from running off to chase cars. <laughs> He's more mascot than monster. In other words, he is the perfect spy. The one member of the company nobody would ever suspect. You are a very cynical man, Captain Prometheus. It's one of the many things I love about you. How long until the next full moon? Oh, and romantic, too. You know what I mean. Unfortunately, yes. It's in two days. Good. 
We still have time. But how do we prove Talbot is a spy? We give him a piece of vital intelligence, something the Nazis are desperate to know, and see what he does. Not to put too fine a point on it, dear, but what on earth could be so vital that a 19-year-old undercover Nazi werewolf spy would willingly blow his cover two days before the full moon while trapped aboard an American warship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? The truth about what really happened to my creator... Victor Frankenstein. Come in. Lieutenant Talbot reporting to sickbay as ordered, sir. At ease, Lieutenant. You know about Dr. Griffin and Lieutenant Westenra, I presume? Yes, sir. Elsa, I mean Second Lieutenant Lanchester told me all about it. I can't believe they're gone, sir. It's a natural part of the grieving process, Lieutenant. It won't feel real for some time. Unfortunately, we do not have the luxury of grief. Monster Company has a new mission. Golly, that was fast. What is it, sir? Find Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein? But I thought he was... Dead? Yes, so did I. But apparently the captain has been lying to us this entire time. I did not lie. I failed to correct your pre-existing misconception. There is a subtle difference. Subtle? Subtle is not something a girl comes to expect from a man with bolts in his neck. Uh, maybe I should come back later. You stay put, Lieutenant. The captain owes us the truth, and I want to hear it now. Uh, very well. Before the war, Victor Frankenstein was a professor of biology at the Berlin Academy of Sciences. His groundbreaking work in biochemistry caught the attention of academics around the world. In early 1933, he was invited to give a lecture at the California Institute of Technology. As fate would have it, this was the same year Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Frankenstein had already made his first breakthroughs on the road to my creation, and he feared if he returned to Germany, the Nazis would steal his discoveries and use them for evil. Gee, you think? (sighs) After his lecture, Frankenstein was approached by a man from the audience, an albino who claimed to be on the verge of perfecting a serum that turned living things invisible. Dr. Griffin. One and the same. The two became fast friends, sharing a mutual interest in unconventional areas of scientific study. Frankenstein and Griffin traveled to London in 1934 and rented a small flat where they conducted their experiments in secret. When Britain declared war on Germany in 1939, Frankenstein formally renounced his German citizenship and became a man without a country. If dear Victor was so appalled by the Nazis, why did he continue to perform dangerous and unethical experiments? Why didn't he stop? She has a point, Captain. Bringing dead people back to life is a pretty creepy thing to do. No offense, sir. You must understand, Frankenstein believed the power to reanimate soldiers might be the only way to stop Germany. The Nazis were marching across the globe, annexing country after country. They seemed unstoppable. That's no excuse for adopting the same tactic. Please, Elsa, let me finish. By early 1940, Dr. Griffin had perfected his invisibility formula, and Frankenstein was finally ready to put his theories to the test. What they didn't count on was the blitz. On the eve of Frankenstein's greatest accomplishment, a German bomb struck his flat, killing him. Instantly. Wait, I thought you said Frankenstein wasn't dead. Quiet, I want to hear this. Earlier that evening, Dr. Griffin had volunteered to raid the local morgue in search of... 
building materials. As the bombs began to fall, he rushed home only to find a smoldering chasm in its place. Throughout the long night and into the morning, Griffin searched the debris for what remained of his friend until finally his macabre scavenger hunt yielded not one but two miracles. The discovery of Frankenstein's cranium and most important of all, the tattered remnants of his secret journal. Oh, no, it can't be. What? Well, don't you see? Frankenstein was his own test subject. Griffin used the notes from the journal. He went through with the experiment. He brought Frankenstein back to life. But if Frankenstein is alive, where is he now? Standing in front of you, Lieutenant. I am Victor Frankenstein. Well, friends, I hope you don't mind all the extra monsters we packed into our terrible tale of terror. You see, we wanted to give you more fang for your buck. Really, Mr. Host, your jokes are almost as scary as this story. Sometimes I'm afraid I'll laugh so hard I'll start coughing. <laughs> I like you, Mary. You're just my blood type. <laughs> oh, stop it, Mr. Host. People will think I'm your ghoul friend. <laughs> but of course I'm not. I haven't been anyone's ghoul friend for a very long time because I'm a happily married homemaker who just can't wait to get home from her grueling radio job and make her ungrateful family dinner. <laughs> I can just picture it now. Everybody slumped around the table, children bickering, husband glaring, grandpa drooling, the bright lights of the dining room struggling to banish the vague sense of existential dread that permeates every room of the house illuminating instead a perfect set of white teacups where Lipton Tea is waiting to distract my family from the fact that I've just taken yesterday's leftover meatloaf, squished it into patties, and renamed it Loaf Burgers. You see, Lipton Tea's brisk, almost belligerent flavor instantly coats your family's tongues, creating a natural barrier between their taste buds and the inadequate dinner you barely had time to make. So serve Lipton Tea for dinner and discover why Lipton Tea is a homemaker's best and only friend. And now, listeners, let's leave the horror of Mary's private life and return to Frankenstein. We rejoin our story aboard the USS Minneapolis, where Captain Prometheus has just revealed that he is something worse than a monster. He's a man. How could you lie to me all these years? I thought you were innocent, a victim of Frankenstein's God complex. But it was you. You unleashed this terrifying science into the world. I was wrong, Elsa. I know that now. Why do you think I let everyone believe Victor Frankenstein was dead? I wanted the secret of reanimation to die with him. Well, what about Griffin? He read your notes. He helped you. He knew everything you knew. Why do you think I encouraged him to take the serum? even after I knew the side effects. You destroyed your friend's mind just to safeguard your secret. How could you? Ow. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure a second lieutenant should really slap a captain. Well, somebody has to knock some sense into that big, ugly head. Do you know what Captain Victor thinks? Captain Victor thinks you're a spy. Jeepers. Yeah, he thinks you're in league with Schneel, and now that you know he's Victor Frankenstein, you'll show your hand. Gosh. Not my hand. That would be pretty dumb. No, sir, I'd never show my hand. 
Of course, I might show my paw. Oh, he's transforming! But how? The full moon is still two days away! Oh, dog, new tricks! Here's another one I learned. Nobody move! How is a werewolf pointing a gun at us? He doesn't even have thumbs! What do you want from us, Talbot? Nothing from her but Aww. you. I'm taking you back to Easter Island. The base you infiltrated was a decoy built just for Monster Company. The real one is on the other side of the volcano. Schneel and his men were a sacrifice the Reich were willing to make. But now that we have Victor Frankenstein, we can bring Schneel back to life. We can resurrect all our fallen soldiers. I will never help the Nazis, Talbot. Never! Uh, never is a pretty strong word, Frankie. What if I were to, oh, I don't know, shoot your girlfriend here? I'm not his girlfriend. Oh, come on! The way you were nagging him about how wrong it is to experiment on dead people. You're obviously crazy about the guy. I I'm not sure what you're seeing him, but hey, beauty is in the eye of the... Uh, you know what? There's no subjective beholder in this situation. That guy is objectively gruesome. He makes those Easter Island heads look like Cary Grant. What I meant to say is I'm not his girlfriend anymore. Do you understand that, Victor? It's over. You are under no obligation to protect me. Let this overgrown Rottweiler do his worst. Shoot me, rub his backside across the carpet. I don't really care. <laughs> and you shouldn't either. This isn't about you and me. This is about saving the world. Elsa, I can't just You're Victor, please. Be the man you created. Promise me you'll never bring anyone back from the dead again. Dick, talk, Frankie! Victor, promise me. What's it gonna be, Captain? Easter Island or dead girlfriend? Oh, I, uh... <laughs> Then laugh, Dr. Griffin! He's alive! <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of Nazis? <laughs> Literally everybody! Ugh. Ah, my gun! Oh. Oh, it slid under the examination table. I don't need a gun to finish you. Not when I have my fangs. Ah! Also, no. <laughs> That's going to leave a mark. She's losing a lot of blood, too. You ready to talk now, Captain? Yes. That same talk I had with your master, Steel. The talk that ends with my hands around your shaggy throat. <laughs> <laughs> The beast is stronger than he looks. I can't hold him for long. Griffin, where are you? Here, take this necklace. Give it to Victor. Frankenstein, catch! Got it. What? You think you can bribe me with jewelry? I'm a werewolf, not a pawnbroker! Victor, Victor, you gave me that necklace for my birthday, remember? You said you couldn't afford gold on a captain's salary. Just silver. Silver? No! Look, Talbot, it fits right around your neck like a choke collar. <laughs> Quickly, Griffin, help me get Elsa on the table. Uh, how bad is it? Uh, I answered my own question. It was bad. Griffin and I did our best, but finally all we could do was wait. Griffin tried to tell me what happened on the island, but I found much of what he said incomprehensible. From what little I could piece together, it seemed Steele's saber missed its mark, wounding Griffin, but not fatally. Racked with pain, Griffin fled the base and stumbled upon another one, the real base, according to Talbot. In a rage, Griffin killed every last Nazi on the island, and his mission completed, he swam to meet our ship, and you know the rest. 
Elsa's condition grew steadily worse throughout the night. By dawn, I had to face the bitter truth. She had lost too much blood. At 9.06 a.m. on the 17th of May, 1944, 2nd Lieutenant Elsa Lanchester died. But there's no reason she has to know that, is there? Victor? Yes, my love. I'm right here beside the bed. I'm alive. Yes, just a few stitches. Nothing to worry about. I'm sorry I said all those terrible things to you and slapped you and broke up with you in front of the wolfman. You are a passionate woman. It's one of the things I love about you. Victor? Yes, dear? There's something I need to know. You would have let Talbot kill me, right? I mean, if Griffin hadn't shown up, if it were a choice between saving me and giving your knowledge to the Nazis, you would have let me die. Yes, Elsa. I would have let you die. I would have had no choice. Well, aren't we a morbid couple? Let's talk about something else. Like what we're going to do after the war. I have an idea. Here. More jewelry. It's not silver, is it? No. Diamond. Victor. Elsa Lanchester, will you marry me? Yes, of course. Oh, Victor, I can't believe it. I'm going to be a bride. Yes. Elsa, the bride of Frankenstein. Well, friends, I guess it's true what they say. Demons are a ghoul's best friend. I'm sorry to interrupt, Mr. Host, but we already made a ghoul pun tonight. I'd hate for us to become too pre-cryptical. That was a bit of a stretch, Mary. I'm not even sure I know what pre-cryptical means. It's predictable, only with the word crypt in it. Goodness, Mr. Host, I never thought I'd have to explain puns to you, of all people. Hmm. Sorry, Mary. I guess I'm like the skeleton who lost his arm bone. I didn't find it humorous. <laughs> you really shouldn't use puns that rely on words that sound the same but are spelled differently. You can't see the spelling on the radio, Mr. Host. Hmm. You know what else you can't see on the radio, Mary? Your resting witch face. <laughs> that was a... Better pun, I'll give you that, but a little too modern for my taste. Nobody will believe this show was written in 1946. <laughs> and you know what else nobody will believe? The amazing chickeny flavor of Lipton Chicken Noodle Soup. That's right, Lipton Chicken Noodle Soup has that real homemade-y flavor. It tastes just like the chicken noodle soup you'd make right in your own kitchen if the only ingredients you had in your kitchen were broken dreams and empty promises. <laughs> and it's easy to prepare, too. Just heat it up and throw it out. <laughs> it's that simple. You won't have dinner, but you will have a kitchen that smells chickeny. And that might be enough to trick your family into thinking you're busy cooking when you're really down at the corner bar crying into your third vodka gimlet. <laughs> Remember, ladies, buy Lipton today for a better, more chickeny tomorrow. Thank you, Mary. And by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is not very chickeny at all, but it sure is murdery. It's called Murder Me Sweet, Murder Me Dead by H.P. Killam. 
And when you're done with that little page turner, be sure to turn the dial back here for another horrifying half an hour. But be warned, it's BYOB. Bring your own booze. <laughs> Until next Tuesday, then. Good night. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> by the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, recorded live at the 2019 Minnesota Fringe Festival. The voices you heard were Shannon Custer, Joshua English Scrimshaw, Tim Uren, Eric Webster, and Joe Wiseman. Chauncey Haworth, Mark Slade, and Lothar Tuppen. The demented minds behind the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour bring you Twisted Pulp Magazine. A journey beyond surreality to worlds you never knew or hoped existed. Worlds of the supernatural. Worlds of dark satire. Worlds of nightmarish futures. Twisted Pulp Magazine. If you thought the 21st century was weird enough already, Think again. Twisted Pulp Magazine. A step beyond your grandfather's pulp. Available at digitalvaudeville.com. That's D I G I T A L V A U D E V I L L E.com. Twisted Pulp Magazine.